Thank you. I know that that was a large uh, chunk of Scripture to read, and you handled it very well. Thank you very much. Um, And I, I said this a couple of weeks ago, but it can't be said enough. I recognize that we are reading larger chunks of Scripture than, uh, than we have in the past. Normally it would just be a, a small section, a few sentences, and as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we're reading each chapter at a time, and even within this chapter, it seems like there could be at least five sermons from the, the different passages within there. Um, but we do value uh, the Word of God and the, the power that it contains and that in this chapter, there is one coherent thought that, that stretches over the chapter as a whole. And so instead of breaking up into uh, smaller sections, we're just going to tackle the entire chapter at one time. So uh, uh, that is why, again, we are reading larger sections of Scripture at the moment. Um, but as I was, I was reading this, I was reminded of a, a gift uh, that a friend of mine gave me last year, and, uh, and, and I'll explain why it reminded me of that in just a moment, but last year a friend of mine gave me uh, tickets to go see a, a monologue, a stand-up of sorts from uh, writer and director Kevin Smith. For those of you that aren't familiar with Kevin Smith, uh, again, he's a writer-director, films like Clerk, Mallrats, uh, movies like that. Uh, He's, he's pretty geeky, so he speaks the language of my people, uh, but he's also pretty crass, uh, very crude, uh, not family-friendly films. There, he will not be making any Hallmark Christmas movies anytime soon, but the, the most interesting thing about seeing him uh, deliver this monologue was he spent the majority of his time talking about his heart attack that he had suffered earlier in the year. In February 2018, he had suffered a, a massive heart attack that has been nicknamed the Widowmaker. Uh, it, in fact, it, what it, what, it was a 100% blockage in the left anterior descending artery. And they had to, to do a stent and go in and... and uh, Miraculously, he survived, obviously. I was hearing him talk about it. Uh, but he was sharing that for the people that go into cardiac arrest from this type of heart attack have a 6% survival rate. Those are not very good odds. And yet here he was on the other side of that heart attack talking about the effect that it had on his life. And in fact, he refers to it now as the greatest thing that ever happened to him. Because as much as I, I, I love Kevin, he, he admittedly was not living a, a healthy lifestyle, but going through this process, especially at the point in his life where he is now a father, he said, something has to change. I cannot continue living this way. And so he immediately changed his, his lifestyle, his eating habits, the way he exercised. He changed everything because he said, I have survived a heart attack that had a 6% survival rate and my life needs to change. 
because the, the drastic news of his situation demanded a response. And it changed his life to the point where he had a new outlook and a new lease on life and said, I need to do something. And I share that story because that is exactly what the author is saying in Hebrews chapter 12. He says that there is something miraculous that has happened and it must drive you to a decision. Will you change or won't you? In fact, the news of what Christ did on behalf of the people of God should have a direct impact on the way that you live your everyday life. In fact, I would argue that from this chapter you can see that the outflow of the Christian life is in direct response to Christ's action. I'll say that again. The outflow of the Christian life is in direct response to Christ's action, that the way that you live your life in response to what Jesus has done should have a noticeable difference in the way that you live your life, that, that you should be uh, noticeably different from the people around you that do not follow Jesus. Because Christianity is not a 12-step program. It's not 12 steps to a, a better life. It's not a checkoff list to make God love you more, but instead it is the response to what God has already done for you. And the author breaks this down and unpacks it in three ways. First, in verses 1 and 2, through focused endurance. Focused endurance in verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 through 17, he unpacks fatherly discipline. Fatherly discipline in verses 3 through 17. And lastly, in verses 18 through 29, faithful worship. Again, that's faithful worship in verses 18 through 29. And before I go any further, let us pray over the Word of God at this time. Gracious God, we come before you in response to what you have done. We're here this morning to, to sing and lift our voices in praise. We're here this morning to sit under your word in response to what you have done for us. And so, God, this morning we pray that you would pour out your spirit in this place that you would use me, in spite of myself, God, that your spirit would speak your gospel truth through me. That this would not be uh, uh, my, my thoughts, my, my ideas, but God, that you would speak the power and the truth of your word. Be with us in this time, and we pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen. Now, for a quick recap, for, for those of you that have not been with us, uh, for those of you that have been with us and might have forgotten, we've been going through the book of Hebrews for the past uh, couple of months. We've been tackling a, a chapter a week, uh, but the book of Hebrews was actually an anonymous, or for us it's anonymous, it's a letter written to Hebrew believers. These were Jewish converts to the Christian faith, hence the letter 
or the book of Hebrews. And what the author is doing is it's, it's almost a, it's a collection of many sermons. Not many, M-A-N-Y, but M-I-N-I. Many, ser- like little sermonettes where he's unpacking the truth and the power of what Jesus Christ has done and what, even what God has done throughout history but has now even made it better through Jesus Christ. In fact, one author, author, Donald Guthrie, has put it this way, that the past has given way to better things. That the, the way that God spoke to and communicated and interacted with His people before, what we call our Old Testament, those were good things. But now, it's even greater now that it, He has communicated through His Son Jesus Christ, greater than the angels, greater than the prophets, greater than the priests, greater than Moses, the Son of God has come. And just before this chapter, in chapter 11, uh, the author unpacked the power of faith. He said that uh, at the beginning of chapter 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the rest of the chapter is walking through this hallway of the heroes of faith. And the author unpacks that faith is what drove Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Rahab, that faith is what drove all of these heroes, these Old Testament Jewish heroes of faith to live obedient lives to the Lord. And he says that yet, while they were commended for their faith, that the the believers looked to them as these heroes of faith, these heroes did not receive what their faith was looking toward because God had something better planned. And so when chapter 12 opens with the word, therefore, all of that baggage, and I mean that in a good way, but all of that baggage of the heroes of faith is contained in that word, therefore. The, the faith that those heroes looked to, that is the meaning. And that faith is what gives Christians focused endurance, his first point in this chapter. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and I've heard so many sermons and Bible studies and talks that abuse this view of a cloud of witnesses that they've, uh, that they've turned and said uh, that this cloud of witnesses, that they're watching you. I've, I've heard it preached and taught that saying these heroes of the faith that now, that now that they're in heaven, they're watching you to make sure that you live a faithful life as well. And on this side of the cross, that is, that's a guilt trip. That's, that's a paranoid faith. Saying, look at these heroes of faith. Don't disappoint them. Don't mess up. But that's not what the author is saying here. He's saying we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. They're not witnessing you. They're witnesses of what God has already done. These are witnesses of God's faithfulness and God's glory. And you are surrounded by these heroes of faith that were so fixated on God that nothing could stop them from following Him. 
And so the author is saying, don't follow God because they're watching you. Follow God because that's what they did. You follow because they followed. They were so fixated on the glory of God that nothing could dissuade them from following Him. Follow in that example. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Lay aside every, every, every weight and sin, every, everything, every stumbling block in your way, everything that trips you up and tries to keep you away from obedience, tries to keep you and distract you from your faith. Lay that aside. Your guilt, your shame, those whispers that the enemy tells you that you are not good enough, lay those things aside and run with endurance, the darkness that clings so tightly. Let go and run with endurance, not by pulling up yourself up by your bootstraps, not by just trying hard enough, being good enough. If I can just do enough good things. No, he says, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who gave you your faith to begin with and the one who is making your faith more perfect. Years ago, uh, I heard a man named Reggie Joyner talk about learning to drive a motorcycle. And for those of you who have never heard the name Reggie Joyner, he's actually a pretty big name in the, the world of youth ministry, which is where I have my background. Uh, but he's the founder of a group called Rethink, and they're an organization that provides resources and training for, for churches and for, for ministries uh, to impact the lives of students. Um, but in this talk, he's talking about learning to, to drive a motorcycle. He had, he had hit this point in his life where uh, he describes it as his midlife crisis, and he could either go crazy or buy a motorcycle. So he bought a motorcycle. And so he's, he's in the church parking lot learning to drive, and uh, the, the person that's training him had set up these road cones, and so he's supposed to bob and weave through the, the road cones in the parking lot. But what he was doing was, as he was trying to go around each, each cone, he would focus on the cone and make sure that he was getting around it to the point where he wasn't looking at what was coming next. And so he was overcompensating and getting so far off track that he was losing control. And the advice that his friend gave him was, don't look at the obstacle that you're trying to get around. Look at where you're trying to go. Let your focus be the end of the line. And once he started doing that, he was able to more easily navigate and, and move around the obstacles that were in his path. Now, I know that that is a pale comparison, but faith is that motorcycle, your faith is that motorcycle because there are going to be obstacles and potholes and cracks that come along the way of your faith. 
And if your attention is so fixated on those obstacles that you are trying to avoid, you're going to end up going off the rails. But if your faith is focused on the end goal, on Jesus Christ himself, then those obstacles that are along the way become more manageable to navigate. When Christ is your focus, your end goal becomes Him, not your obstacle. In fact, Jesus Himself says in John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus Himself says there will be struggle in your life. There will be tribulation. There will be hard, difficult, painful times. If there is any promise that Scripture gives, is that there will be difficulty. But the greater promise is that Jesus says, I've, I'm greater than those. I've overcome the world. There will be tribulation and struggle and heartache. But Jesus says, keep your eyes on me because I'm greater than that. Don't keep your focus on, dis- on your distractions. Don't dwell on the difficulties that do come up. I'm not saying pretend that they're not there. Acknowledge them. Put a name to them. Say, this is in my life and it is miserable right now, but I am following the risen Lord Jesus who is greater than this heartache. Don't stay in that obstacle. There are going to be struggles that will come up in your life. There will be job losses. There are going to be broken relationships. There will be sickness and death. There will be distractions like uh, the obligation of your, your civil duties and even the distraction of uh, hoping for some sort of political savior de- de- depending on either side that you do or do not associate with. There will be the sin and temptation to find peace in anything other than God himself. Sometimes even to the point where you become a God unto yourself that you are looking to yourself for your hope and your strength and your salvation. And the author of Hebrews says, throw all of that aside. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the one who created your faith and the one who is making you more and more faithful. Jesus is the one that says, I have overcome the world And in me, you may have peace. So Christian, keep your eyes on him. The author continues in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Consider the endurance that Christ showed, the, the endurance that Christ had. 
And Christ's faithfulness is what kept him looking at the Father. And I'm pretty sure that no one in this room, and I know this is a blanket generalization, but no one in this room has endured for the faith to the point where you have been physically attacked for your faith. No one in this room has shed their blood for a faith in Jesus Christ, but the church universal, the church globally, there are many who have had to shed their blood for the name of Christ. But they're able to do that by keeping their eyes on Jesus, by doing exactly what the author says, by considering Him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Look to His endurance. That's what He modeled for His followers. Look to the Father. And specifically, as He begins to unpack, do not turn away from the Father's discipline. As the Father gives His fatherly discipline. He goes on and quotes Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Proverbs, this entire collection of of wisdom writings, is saying, remember, remember that the Father disciplines the one that He loves. We tend to view discipline as something bad, that when you are being disciplined, that the discipline itself is bad, or that you are being disciplined because you have been bad. That that discipline has this negative connotation that when someone is being disciplined, that there is a negative response to it. Instead, the author is viewing discipline as a form of training. That this discipline is not because you've been such a bad person that the Father is giving you some sort of spiritual spanking, but that the Father's discipline is for training and correcting and growing you. In fact, he goes on, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're being disciplined, that's... That's because you're a child of God. If God himself is disciplining you, that's because he views you and says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I will not allow you to not grow. God is disciplining you because he says, I want you to be even greater than what you are. I want to model you toward holiness The discipline, the fatherly discipline is for your training, for your correction. In Romans 8, 15 through 17, Paul tells the the church there, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The discipline that you are receiving as a child of God has the the intention and the purpose of making you more like Jesus. Your discipline is not a punishment. It's a refining. It's a molding. It's a modeling you into the image of the Holy Son of God. The author goes on to describe discipline from an earthly father. Because when, we, when, a, when a parent, when a, when a father or a mother disciplines their child, we recognize that that is a good thing. If a child reaches for a hot stovetop, you smack their hand and tell them no. Because you don't want them to be seriously injured. If you see your child pushing other children on the playground, you tell them that is not the way to behave. Not because you're trying to punish them, because you want them to be a better, more loving person. If your child does not want to eat their vegetables or brush their teeth, you don't let them dictate and decide the way that they want to live their life, but you say, this is for your good. That is why I'm making you do this. Parental discipline is for training and correcting out of love and affection. In fact, discipline shows love and concern for another person. If you see someone doing something that they shouldn't do or something that they haven't learned the the appropriate response yet, and you do nothing, you are telling that person, I do not care enough about you to teach you the right thing to do. I don't care enough about you. I don't love you enough to make this wrong thing right. And so when the Father is showing you His heavenly, holy discipline, He's saying, I love you enough to mold you in the image of My Son. Fatherly discipline is not because God wants to punish you. Fatherly discipline is because God loves you so much that He has brought you into His family and is making you more and more like Jesus. God's discipline is a sign that you are His. So Christian, why would you want to turn from that? Why would you want to abandon the discipline of God? He goes on and he says, and picking up in halfway through verse 10, he, said, he says that God is disciplining us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. No one is disciplined and says, you know what, I really like this. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is never a joyous thing in the midst of being corrected. But it's for our good. It's for my good. It's for your good because the Father loves you enough to make you more like Jesus. Therefore, 
Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. There's a, a common trope in film and television. That, that, for those of you that don't know what a trope is, that's something that you see used repeatedly in movies and television and liter- literature. It's just like a, a stereotype. It, something that you see over and over. But there's a common trope in film and television that's referred to as the power of love. In fact, it's named after the Huey Lewis song, Power of Love, that was written for Back to the Future. But this trope is that when the, the hero, the protagonist, is, is feeling so beat down that they cannot go on, that, that, that failure is inevitable, but there's the reminder of love. Either their love for, for someone else or that someone else loves them enough that the hero finds that strength to get back up and carry on. This therefore is almost like the source of that, that common trope that we see over and over again that therefore says because you are so loved by the Father that He disciplines you as His child, therefore strengthen your knees, pick up your drooping hands, find your strength not in your own necessity of having to be good enough, find your strength in the fact that the Father calls you His child. You are His. In His love, keep going. And because of His love, do these things. He gives this list of imperative commands in in verses 14 through 17. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The author is saying, because of the Father's love, strengthen your knees. Find that endurance to keep going, not in your own strength, but in the love that the Father has already given you. Do these things. Strive for peace. And the church, with your brothers and sisters in faith and in Christ, strive for peace and holy living. Point others to the gospel. Our faith is not a faith of moralism. Don't point others to proper behavior. Don't point others and say, all right, well, you have to stop going to rated R movies and don't, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. I remember hearing that a lot in youth group. But it was, it's not this list of moral behaviors or modifications that says, if you can just be good enough, no, point others to the gospel of a Savior who died for your sins and rose again and urge one another toward holiness. And so, Christian, is that what characterizes your heart? You, here, today, is that what characterizes and describes your heart? Can these things be said for you? The Father's discipline is meant to mold you toward holiness. 
And so I encourage you, let His love shape you in the image of Christ. And lastly, the author describes how the coming eternal kingdom should encourage all Christians toward faithful worship. He goes on and describes what the people of God came to when Moses led them to Mount Sinai. He says that Israel came before God and they were afraid. They could not endure the order that was given that even if if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. They, they were not allowed to touch this holy and sacred land. They were terrified of what the holiness of God meant. To the point where even Moses himself, the leader of God's people, who spoke face to face with the Lord, said, I tremble with fear. says, you didn't come to that terrifying mountain, but instead, in verse 22, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He says, this is what you have come before. And reading through that list, just hearing the majesty of what that scene is, the majesty alone of that would be terrifying, except for the fact that you are not coming as someone trying to earn that invitation. You are coming as a child of God being invited into that scene that God is saying you are my child you are coming into a greater kingdom God has called you into his eternal kingdom that will not pass away picking up in verse 26 at that time his voice shook the earth but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. He's quoting from the, from the prophet Haggai that there will come a time that when the Lord speaks again that this created world will tremble and pass away. That the power of His Word will cause this broken earth, the earth and the heavens, to pass away and a new, greater, eternal kingdom will be established And that is what you have been called into. You have been made a citizen of heaven. And even greater than that, you have been made a child of the living God through Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus took your sin to the cross, he didn't just give you a blank slate. He didn't just take your sin and put it to death on that cross. But he gave you his holiness. He gave you his righteousness. And he made you a child of God through His death and His resurrection. Not something that you have to earn with your behavior, but because out of the love of the Father and the Son, you are a child of God. Co-heirs with Christ. Citizens of the eternal kingdom of heaven. Therefore, verse 28, 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Saying, in light of what God has done for you, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through making you a child of God, through his fatherly discipline, through calling you and making you a citizen of an eternal kingdom, live your life with reverence and awe as an act of worship. In Matthew 5, as Jesus is beginning his ministry and teaching the disciples, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You've been made a child of God. Let your light shine. Not just in the the Sunday school of this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, but in a way that your life is so full of the glory of God that people cannot help but see His light that is in you. Live your life in such a way that the glory and the love of Jesus Christ is shining in and through and out of you, that when non-Christians look at you, when people that are not believers look at you, that they say, there's something different about that person. I've never seen someone love as much as that person. I've, I've never seen someone forgive as much as she does. I've never seen someone sacrifice as much as he does. There's something different about that person. What is it? In our culture today, the term evangelical has become a dirty, a dirty word, a dirty phrase. To be labeled an, an evangelical is to be a, a, a hypocrite, a, a bigot, a, a hateful person that uses God as a mask to put others down. And I'm of the persuasion that word needs to be redeemed. Because as believers in God, we are evangelical in that we carry the good news of Jesus Christ to evangelize to the world. That our hope is not in our behavior, the hope is not in ourselves, but what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And sadly, Christians are more known more often for what they oppose, what they stand against And I want to challenge you, let the world know what you love. Let the world look at you and know what you stand for and what you believe in. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself and love them so much that the light of the glory of God the gospel of Jesus Christ is shining out of you in your words and your actions 
your very life, let it shine the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is faithful worship. So Christian, will you live a life of a distracted faith, constantly tripped and tangled by sin and circumstance? working so hard to avoid the loving discipline of your heavenly Father, being known more often for what you are willing to fight against. Or, Christian, will you focus your, your endurance on what Christ has already done for you and find your peace in what He has done on your behalf? Will you remember that the Father disciplines those whom He loves and that He is in the process of molding you in holiness in the image of His Son? And will you live a life of faithful worship in reverence and awe and shining the light of the gospel of forgiveness and mercy and grace and love that is found only in Jesus Christ. Christian, how will you choose to live? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning confessing that far too often we are distracted by the circumstances that trip us up. That we take our eyes off of your, of your Son. We forget what He has already won and obtained and given to us. We confess that far too often we run from your discipline and we seek to live a life that feeds our own comfort. God, we confess those things and we repent and God, we say, I need more of you. Keep our eyes focused on Christ. Let Him be our source of hope and our endurance to run the race of faithfulness. Let us remember that your discipline means that you love us and that you have not abandoned us. And let our lives be lived in such a way that the world sees us and sees the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in His holy and majestic and precious name we pray. Amen.